I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this is Inside Kurdistan. So it's another Diplomat interview, so soon after the last one, too. Uh, today, I had the pleasure to speak to the relatively new Consul General from the Netherlands, Jaco Behrens. I actually enjoy the Netherlands' foreign presence in this region because they're always working on projects related to water conservation and responsible agriculture, uh, which is one of the topics that I'm personally very passionate about. Uh, towards the latter half of the interview, we get into some of the topics that they're starting to work on out here. And an important thing that we actually touched on in that section is the connection between political tension and radicalized populations and a lack of resources. Because Kurdistan and Iraq in general is looking at a potentially disastrous next decade if the water usage in the cities as well as rural areas doesn't improve. And there's already been an escalation in tension between the two major Kurdish parties recently. And an important point that Jaco brings up in this interview is that political infighting in a country and the instability and corruption that stems from that from both parties creates doubt when it comes to foreign investment, either regarding time or money or from public or private corridors. And between looking at these three factors, between domestic policies, foreign diplomatic missions, and resource management, the history and the future of this region can be mapped out pretty easily. And that future here is reliant on all three of those factors working in sync with one another. And if they don't, the KRG will lose the attention and money of governments like the Netherlands. They will lose out on projects that can help manage the coming droughts and dust storms and cholera outbreaks that are not going to be going away anytime soon. And that will create more instability and eventually radicalization, which will then lead that cycle to complete itself over and over until the consequences become irreparably dire. And we don't discuss this cycle directly in the interview, but I think it's something to keep in mind while listening to this, because the balance of environment and foreign and domestic agendas is something that is increasingly defining the KRI. So with that said, here's our conversation. So welcome back from vacation. Thank you. Yeah, it was a short stop, but uh, yeah, it was good to be back for a couple of days. Where'd you go? Uh, back to the Netherlands, and I was mostly with uh, family in The Hague, uh, which was uh, also actually the purpose of uh, going back. I'm curious, actually, uh, do you ever run into, either by accident or if there's like scheduled meetings, like uh, Kurds who have moved to the Netherlands from here when you go back? Uh, you mean in the Netherlands? Yeah, when yeah. I, um, in the Netherlands, not so much because uh, there, the, the, I spend when I get back, I spend a day maybe on uh, in headquarters to talk to people, but that is mostly my counterparts in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, so the, the amount of people, unless there's a, a certain event, of course, then yeah, there are so many people there, uh, you will run into them. Actually, a week ago there was a big manifestation. Uh, uh, close to where I live, uh, from uh, the Kurdish, um, well, part of the, the Kurdish society in the Netherlands. Uh, but that was an outside uh, event. I, I do run into a lot of Dutch Kurdish nationals, so with double passports mm -hmm. uh, or double nationalities, I must say, uh, when I'm here, when I'm uh, doing my job here in, uh, in Erbil. Uh, because there, of course, I, um, you know, I look for the spaces where the Netherlands and the Kurdish community are interacting because that's basically my job. 
Um, and that's where I run into many people that have uh, a background in the Netherlands. Yeah. Well, and then there's also a history of different migration waves uh, of, of Kurds going to the Netherlands and then coming back. Yeah. Uh, so there's, I mean, I was wondering if you could just walk me through those different migration waves and where those Kurds came from and why. Yeah. Yeah. So if you divide that, I think there's uh, three major waves of people coming from uh, Kurdistan uh, region to towards, in general, um, Europe, but then zooming into the Netherlands, uh, it was in the 1960s that uh, Kurdish people from Turkey mostly came to the Netherlands. Uh, that was for mostly for job opportunities. So it was a migrant wave uh, that came for um, economic reasons. Uh, labor mostly, um, and they establish themselves. Then the the people that I run into mostly here with now these this double um, identity, so to speak, are mostly from the second big wave, which is in the 1980s and 90s, and it has to do with uh, the persecution by uh, Saddam Hussein at that time. Uh, so big part of the uh, Iraqi Kurds uh, at that time, especially of course, came uh, to Western Europe and to the Netherlands. Uh, and then the last part is more recent, which has to do with Syria and everything that happened in Syria. And now this this middle section, so the the, the second uh, part I just mentioned, uh, are is a group of immigrants that um, so fled for for real violence here, uh, came to the Netherlands, also to Germany, for instance. But we have a sizable group in the Netherlands, and they did very well in the Netherlands. There. Mm. Um, they assimilated really well. They Im basically they took all opportunities that were there, and most of their kids went to Dutch universities, Dutch schools, and there's a big part of that population that returned back to Kurdistan. Uh, and so I come across a lot of people in Erbil, but also you know in other places, where uh, people suddenly start talking Dutch to me. Uh, because they, you know, they have a Dutch passport. They went to school, studied in the Netherlands, mm -hmm. and they also did very well coming back here. So they're usually or often uh, high up in governmental positions. They are high up in uh, private sector uh, positions, uh, also in civil society. Uh, they have a very warm heart for the Netherlands. They're some, sometimes even more orange-hearted than <laughs> than I am as a Dutch-born mm. uh, person. Um, yeah, and, and I think that comes from the fact that they really felt welcomed at that time, uh, at a moment that they were really, um, yeah, under pressure and, and, you know, looking for safety. Um, and because they took full opportunity of what was offered there for them in terms of the education and the, the possibility to develop themselves. Um, and it makes it uh, an excellent, uh, fantastic environment for me to work in. Um, the Iraqi... Um, Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, Mr. Hussein, uh, is now, I think, one of the only cabinet members in the new government that is uh, re remained in position. He has a, a Dutch, uh, sorry, a Dutch background, uh, so he is uh, one of these people. And then, of course, in uh, in Baghdad, but I come across them here in Erbil a lot. And uh, one of the things we discussed before, but I think it's worth mentioning now, is that their migration currently there there's political hurdles that you have to uh, get over for things to be able to work with this government, with Iraq, with the Netherlands. And things don't always work smoothly. Things oftentimes there are conflicts of interest. I was wondering if you could walk me through the current situation with migration. Yeah, that is uh, that is definitely a point that we uh, that we see 
uh, as an issue we need to work on with uh, with the government here in um, in in now and in the coming period. Mm-hmm. Um, there's different angles to take here. First of all, maybe it's good to to say that migration, of course, is uh, uh, one of the major issues that will uh, we will have to deal with as uh, the world, basically, because uh, from uh, insecurity and instability comes migration. Mm-hmm. But let's not forget that the whole, uh, you know, the COP27, it's ongoing in Sharm el-Sheikh, of course, at the moment. Uh, about climate and the climate crisis is going to be uh, not only potentially but is already a big driver behind migration and new migration waves will will uh, start to develop. Um, so this is also very much an issue in the bilateral relationship, uh, which is formally, of course, between Baghdad and the Netherlands because th- that is where the embassy is and that's where... Uh, right. Uh, that uh, tie is. But here in Erbil, where I work uh, at uh, the consulate, um, we of course also have with the the KRG, with uh, the Kurdish regional government, we have our interactions about migration as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, we're not always on the same page about this because, for instance, we have um, a number of people in the Netherlands that went through the whole procedure that we have for people that, for instance, ask for asylum or are migrating. And once they went through a procedure where they end up as being um, not, uh, they don't get a status as to remain in the Netherlands because they don't fulfill the criteria or well, there could be several reasons for that. They at a certain moment have to return back uh, to the country they came from. Uh, those numbers for Iraq are relatively high. So we have a relative big population of people that we are actually trying to have returned back to this country. Um, and we're working with the government in seeing how to do this because we're not that that process is not very smooth at the moment. It's mm-hmm. not working very well. Um, so that's the, the, the current issue will only be, I think, more uh, urgent in in the coming years and maybe in the coming decades because migration is such a pressure on uh, on the system. Um, and and on the other hand, I think there are of course certain demands here or, or questions here to us um, that we can see if in this dialogue we can come you know closer together that we could do at the side of the Netherlands. For instance, we at this time only have business visa for people coming from Kurdistan traveling to the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. That is a relatively restricted policy. Um, other Western European countries do also issue, for instance, a tourist visa. Uh, we don't do that at this moment, um, but there is a question, of course, to us: Why? Why don't you? Why? Why can't you open up that? Right. Yeah. Well, and I mean, to people, uh, there's a, a sort of a, a global agreement, uh, an unspoken global agreement that the refugee population should be taken in, in somewhat. Uh, somewhat for the reason of economic benefit for the country that they're moving to, if they're not going to contribute to the economy for the next generation, which it's been proven time and time again that they do, regardless of the visa that they come in on, then why should we let them in? Why should we open our borders? And so it's a similar policy in the U.S. if you're not going to have a direct contribution to uh, you know, some workforce. And that's always, I don't know, I was wondering if you could elaborate on your views on that a little more. Yeah, well, um, I think it is a reality. The the the, the, um, the narrative you were just posing is something that is uh, also 
kind of um, resonance with uh, our electorate. So mm-hmm. it's, it is also about you have to kind of have a story if there's pressure on your society because of new people coming in, because new people need new houses, they need jobs, they need education. Mm-hmm. So if that system is put under pressure by pe- new people coming in, you need to have a narrative also to your own population in, in how, why is this? But I, I want to make a, a big uh, addition to what you said because in the Netherlands at this moment um, I'm not 100% sure how that is in the US but in the Netherlands for sure uh, there is another very valid and also um, currently held position that is that anybody that flees from war and um, violence and has uh, a very unsafe place where they came from and if they would return would return to that place of for instance persecution uh, war um, that they should have a safe haven and that we should be able to so that is aside from the economic perspective um, of course then you need to look at how do you manage these uh, these flows of income I mean if if this grows beyond a certain number uh, it gets um, to a point where you cannot really uh, get people sufficiently into your society mm-hmm. uh, and make them part of that society because that of course is needed at a certain point otherwise you have no uh, you know you, you basically have a group of uh, completely separate people that remain separate and you want to find the entrances of where people like we were and uh, we started our talk of course about the su- success story of some of the Kurdish people that uh, came to the Netherlands mm-hmm. that was a very that was one of these examples where you see that then people really add something to society and it works both ways uh, but it has its limits but besides that economic factor I really want to emphasize that um, it is also about uh, safety I mean and, and then the, the issue is of course how do you distinguish where do you draw the line between safe countries and unsafe countries? Where do you draw the line between groups of people that are within a safe country not safe? Uh, so it's complex, really complex. Yeah. Speaking of complex, when we go back to you dealing with the KRG, I mean, political divide is at an all-time high since at least the late 90s uh, between the PUK and the PDK. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious as a diplomat here, how you are navigating that divide? How are you able to implement sort of your your vision and then your country's vision as a representative of it uh, with the projects that you want to implement? And, 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 and there's a certain degree of backroom dealing that needs to happen with any diplomatic position. I'm wondering how you're navigating those right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's the, the, your last point is very true. And it's good that uh, in the diplomatic world, we have that option. We have that channel of mm-hmm. of unseen talks uh, because um, it is sometimes needed to to create um, a, a mutual a common ground first uh, before you can move ahead and and uh, you know publicly uh, look for for statements and and things like that sometimes the other way around sometimes you need to kind of put something out there to for instance get a reaction mm-hmm. uh, on like the what <laughs> Well, um, if 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 there is a certain urgency to something, then of course it you don't first kind of look for the mutual ground in the in uh, the back uh, backstage, mm-hmm. but you kind of put it out directly, and that could be on anything of of importance to your country or to uh, the, um, 
the, for instance, also the consulate where we work, could be on safety, like for instance, uh, outside actors that uh, do something here and, and that you automatically just put something in the media about that, take a position. Um, but on your question on the more, let's say, longer term um, tensions or cooperation between uh, the, the two big uh, factions here in, in uh, Kurdistan, um, we have, of course, seen that these tensions are rising uh, over the, the last period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw that in, in several different ways. There were also uh, a number of uh, violent uh, incidents that, that uh, kind of signify that these tensions are growing. Um, and what we try to do, and, and I'm not, we are not as the Dutch alone there because this narrative you see with a lot of um, outside countries, third countries, that uh, try to indicate that this kind of destabilizes the Kurdish region, uh, not to be dramatic because you can maybe better say it makes the Kurdish region less stable. Mm-hmm. When this region, which is, I believe, a very stable re- region in Iraq, uh, gets less stable, that means something for uh, um, a region that is already under pressure. So we are talking about security from security uh, stabilization and from stabilization development or prosperity. That is basically a, a, a theory but also a logical line that you see. And when you want to look for uh, security and, and stability, it is of course not a good sign that the two um, biggest factions that make up the KRG, uh, that the tensions between those two are, are growing. So that means that we also of course put that position out and, and and we try to address in, in sometimes behind the scenes and sometimes openly that we say, uh, you know, it is really important to get your house in order to really make sure that you have a unified front uh, because if Kurdistan is not unified, how could you expect that you make or that you hold a strong position in anything, for instance, in the talks, the dialogue that you have with Baghdad about the constitution, but also Absolutely. to the outside world, uh, you know, also to international yeah. parties that come into your area. Well, uh, and your own citizens. Exactly. <laughs> no, very much. Yeah, very true. Yeah, yeah. it is about also... Um, yeah, proposing, you know, an image of uni- unification towards uh, your own people. And mm-hmm. if you ever want to think about what Kurdistan could grow into, then, of course, it starts there. A major part of that is economic viability as well. Yeah. Uh, and so what I want to talk about is sort of a lot of your uh, agenda has to do with increasing economic viability in Kurdistan. Specifically, let's start with agriculture. Uh, I'll actually, because before we talked about this, uh, 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 before we started this interview, rather, uh, we talked about sort of the five pillars of your agenda. So I was wondering if you could walk me through that and we'll tackle it pillar by pillar. Yeah. Um, So we have a a multi-annual strategy that is not for the consulate, uh, which I'm heading here in Erbil, but it is for the whole team uh, in Iraq. So it is uh, driven uh, very much also by the embassy in uh, in Baghdad. And um, that strategy um, focuses on, on five uh, major subjects. Uh, the first is security sector reform. We already touched upon that a bit in, in terms of saying how important security is for stability and then further development. Um, and that has to do also with Uh, our support to the several different military um, coalitions Mm -hmm. or missions that are here. Most importantly, uh, the anti-Daesh coalition, which the Netherlands is part of, uh, OIC. 
which we have for a number of years already been supporting troops for. Uh, currently, there's still uh, about m- more than 130 Dutch military so soldiers as a force protection here at the airport in Erbil. Mm-hmm. Um, then next to that, there's the NATO mission, NMI, which the Dutch is contributing to in terms of advisory uh, positions. Uh, and then we have a European mission. So all three of those are within our security sector reform. And there's much more, but in a nutshell. Yeah, we can get into all of that if we want, but that's going to be another hour. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, we can talk a lot about that uh, further. Then uh, the second pillar, I think, is uh, reintegration of IDPs, uh, a very important topic. Um, we have a big program that is called Prospects that we do together with the World Bank with um, UN, two UN uh, agencies, U, uh, UNICEF and uh, UNHCR, and with ILO, a very important partner, mm-hmm. and IFC, um, which tries to create an environment where IDPs will be offered some form of... Um, way back into society. So right. it is everything basically from education of kids, make sure that they still have some form of education, but also to job opportunities for young people. Anything that that is working along in uh, trying to get people uh, to a normal existence again after these long times in IDP camps, for instance. And and that means, of course, interaction in the camps as well. And it's quite complex because what we have tried to do is bring these uh, five organizations together with the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs together because it's so important because they ha- they have their own specialities they have their own um, specific way of working so that makes it complex because you need to integrate that but once it works it's like an organic thing that kind of deals with all the different things that are needed mm-hmm. which is uh, important well the final two pillars economic development and extremism are pretty interconnected in my view uh, yes. So we can tackle those together, I think, yep. uh, because, as you mentioned before, a major part of your agenda and your interest personally and and uh, or I think personally and as a, a diplomat is making sure that there is environmental sustainability past the next 10 years in the Kurdistan region of Iraq, uh, that that is extremely important uh, for all sorts of reasons. But I, I want to touch on. Environmental sustainability as a conduit towards political uh, uh, success and sustainability and then also as a a key preventative measure against extremism. So I was wondering if you could touch on how you fold in environmental sustainability and uh, economic viability and how that factors into your interest in creating or contributing to a politically stable KRI. Yep. Yeah, no, a good question. And and again, a big question. So it's yeah. sometimes hard to kind of see how we can, uh, in, a, in a quite concise uh, matter, still say the things that is needed. But uh, let me let me give it a shot. Uh, to start with, um, with the point of, of uh, preventing extremism. So yes, I think that everything we can do that we can contribute uh, to to economic development here for people just having decent jobs, uh, for people to have a future inside where they say I can sustain my family, I can bring my kids to school because I have the money, I have the opportunities, will prevent uh, fertile ground for extremism. Because uh, extremism is extremely well at uh, making use of people that have no opportunities. Right. That's just basically how it works because it, it does 
give you an alternative world where you do or at least are are offered uh, potentially opportunities that you otherwise don't get. And that's not only in the economic sense because people get paid, for instance, to join a certain group uh, or, or, or do certain things for uh, extremist groups. Or but political it, party. Or political parties, yes. Uh, but it also has to do with social structures because if you don't have um, a... Um, um, a stable social structure to fall into because you're jobless and you are on the run or you have no um, uh, other social fabric that that you feel uh, part of, Mm -hmm. um, you will be offered that very easily if you fall into a certain structure where that, you know, you have your brothers around you, where you have a hierarchy, where you have somebody, a leader that takes you places. So that's what extremism usually does. Uh, so the, I, I, we, as uh, the Netherlands, in our policy, fully agree in that that the two are linked. So what is it then that we try to do? First of all, it's it's important we I think to to mention that we of course try. Uh, we talked a bit about diplomacy and and finding common ground and mutual interest. That we try to see where we can assist the government here. We are not here to unfold our complete policies Mm -hmm. that we see as fit, Uh, we are, of course, trying to find those things that we can contribute to. And what you see then, and especially talking about the the Kurdistan regional government, uh, that there is definitely a realization that the economy here needs diversification. Uh, The, let's say, the old model of making money, which is still very much in place, of course, is just selling oil and gas and that for two reasons will not be sustainable one because these reserves will dry up and and some of them rather Already sooner are, yeah. exactly sooner than later and the second is because the world is is changing and in the long term there will not be a demand for these fossil fuels mm-hmm. so and and that realization really is is here within government as well so what is needed is a diversification where you look at other sectors you can develop and one of the most important one of the the government here now is agriculture uh, which uh, the the Dutch have a lot to offer in. We are uh, a big, um, actually the second largest exporter in the Netherlands of uh, fresh vegetables and fruits uh, which for a small country is is quite an achievement and it comes from a long tradition of technology and um, looking in how you can actually efficiently produce food. Mm We try to uh, export that knowledge. We try to help, um, especially here in the the KRG, uh, sorry, in the KRI. We have been doing that on the potato um, value chain. So everything from uh, seedlings, potato seedlings, growing potatoes, up to making them into potato chips, French fries, whatever is being used to uh, uh, in in the food chain. Um, and that is something uh, this government is really keen on, and that we really try to expand further. Um, it also deals, uh, part of that policy is also that we try to support young entrepreneurs. We have a program that is called uh, Orange Corners. Mm-hmm. Um, we try to select a number of uh, viable and promising young entrepreneurs, Kurdish uh, or Iraqi entrepreneurs that have good ideas. We vet them. We, we So we have really a selection process where we ask for people to come in with their uh, proposals and then we look at all kinds of aspects business-wise but also um, innovation-wise. Um, and then we guide these programs. So we, we take a number of uh, about six companies per cohort 
and we give them training, we guide them in further developing developing their uh, their ideas. And some of these uh, business models then grow into real new companies, which is good for economic development here, but also um, you know supports young people that need in are in need of that perspective in, in uh, how to um, how to sustain here. Um, so those are the two main important ones I think that uh, that has that tap into diversification but there's many others that we can uh, think of that we are mm-hmm. talking to the government with uh, about a big stereotype with you guys is uh, your water management. <laughs> That's yep. the big question that you always get from journalists and uh, when I worked in Jordan that was what the uh, Dutch embassy was like known for was all of their water related projects. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, for example, there's a project uh, that you didn't mention yet, but I'd, I'd love to touch on real quick, is you have a hydroponics project in Halabja uh, that you're currently uh, working on implementing. And I'm curious what kind of water management strategies you're trying to implement to make sure that these agricultural projects uh, have uh, legs to run on beyond like the next 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely true. Um, like I said, we in the Netherlands, we have a culture of agriculture and, and food production, but also very much, of course, dealing with water. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually in our case, it's keeping the water out yeah. <laughs> uh, because we're <laughs> very much below um, water level. Um, but it also, of course, those techniques also teach you how to to um, work with water uh, and that is something that uh, yeah we we know is in a country uh, here for instance and in this region is very much needed um, your question was mostly about how to then apply that for instance to the agricultural policies um, there is a lot of knowledge uh, in technique in how to use a lot less water and the the the, the part you you mentioned the hydrophonic uh, is a technique where you don't use normal soil mm-hmm. but you have um, you have certain vegetables or fruits grow on uh, um, um, a soil and um, how do you say that artificial soil right. which you then really very scarcely um, drip with water it's a, a dripping system mm-hmm. and that water is also directly reused so everything and in a normal soil of course uh, what you see here and, and even as, uh, to my surprise sometimes here in the environment that I that we have outside is that sometimes during broad daylight um, lawns are, are watered and and that water is, is in excess just getting into the soil and then lost so there is a way, there are many ways to use and to, to grow food um, with a lot less water. Um, and that is something that we are trying to, uh, yeah, to, to showcase. So we have demo farms, for instance, demo projects, where we try to uh, not only have people experience that, but also make um, farmers and potential investors very important. Um, to make them aware of these techniques. In um, about two weeks, the, uh, November 22nd, I think it is, we have the AgroPAC here, a big uh, agricultural uh, fair here in Erbil. Mm-hmm. We have a big, uh, <coughs> excuse me, we have a big Dutch pavilion there. Uh, we will have a number of uh, companies there that also showcase their uh, um, techniques and their products. Uh, so that's one of the things we do. Um, but yeah, in, in water management, that this will grow into one of the most important things. And there's much more to say about water management in general. I mean, how do we get sufficient water into this region, into this country? Mm-hmm. And then sometimes, of course, the other way around. If we now hit the rain season, 
uh, how do if we... If we hit the rainy season. <laughs> exactly, yeah, when it, when it happens. Uh, but yeah, it will be my first year here during that, uh, that period. But mm-hmm. I've heard and I, I know that last years there have been big problems with floods so there's of yes. course also the, the you know the fact that how can we maybe make use first of all protect ourselves against uh, the damages of these uh, massive rain uh, rain pours but then also how, how can we make maybe make better use of these amounts of water that come from the sky and we need at certain other moments in certain areas um, yeah that's another uh, aspect real quick I just want to ask sort of as a general question what um, what are you hoping to implement personally through your own position here as you develop more relations here, as you uh, build more connections? What are you hoping to leave as sort of your imprint as a, as a diplomat here? Mm. Um, well, I'm, I'm hap- very happy with uh, the, the legacy I, I found here. So mm-hmm. there's a, a number of things that I just want to take a step further. And, and th- those are actually... S- some of the things we just uh, discussed right. uh, over the last uh, 30 minutes or so. Um, definitely agriculture is one of the parts that we, because the demand and the sincerity of this government to work on it is obvious. So it is very much a, a personal uh, connection I feel there that we can really make a difference by by yeah, taking the next step in uh, in working together with this government on agri uh, policies. Um, the second is, I think, uh, also on the migration that we touched upon, because it is simply a, a topic that we need to discuss, and it, it will um, it, it will come towards us anyway. So mm-hmm. we need to address it, and we need to find ways in um, uh, yeah in, in in cooperation there as well. Um, and I think the the private sector development of the private sector is also an important one because. I've seen here that uh, because of, let's say, this older model of, you know, how the economy is driven, that also part of that is that the government here, uh, the the KRG, uh, is seen as an employer. It's very much seen by many people as um, a company almost that they want to work with because Mm -hmm. it gives them security. There's a a pension attached to it. There's all forms of security, income security. But of course, a, a government, I think, is not there to employ people. Right. It's there to serve people. It's there for the interest of the people. And of course, they, we do that by employing people. But that's a different way of looking at it. And I think uh, also this government is aware of that. And they want to really make a, a step where people find more jobs and more opportunities in the, in the private sector and developing the private sector. And then you will get away a bit from that model where uh, the government is just an employer because of the sake of being an employer. Right. We, we need to get away from that and, and get more job opportunities in commercial businesses and viable business ideas such as developed by the Orange Corner project. Um, so, um, yeah, that's a couple of uh, ideas I have. Well, I wish you the best of luck on all of those, and thanks so much for coming in today. Very welcome. It was fun to do. Cheers. Thank you. I'd like to thank Jocko Behrens for coming in uh, to talk in person. Uh, Inside Kurdistan is brought to you by the Kurdistan Information Network, and you can check out our podcast on KurdistanIn.net. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to us at info at KurdistanIn.net. I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this has been Inside Kurdistan.